Gracias, ladies, Lauren, for giving me this opportunity to study God's Word and that we can all open God's Word together. And for the ladies who might be listening in Spanish, las quiero muchísimo y espero que este estudio sea una bendición para ustedes de manera muy especial. So, today we're going to be in Genesis 37 through 50. Genesis 37 through 50, which means we're already finishing the book of Genesis. Can you believe it? In only three months, only three months, we've seen creation, the fall, God's plan for a Messiah, man's rebellion in the flood, the Tower of Babel, and finally, we've been looking at a really messed up family, right? That in spite of themselves, was chosen by God to accomplish his work of redemptive grace. Hasn't it all been amazing? I've been so thankful and I've been so blessed to be in this Bible study. So, you know we lived in Mexico for a little while. In Mexico, we have a famous saying, you probably know it, Mi casa es tu casa. Mi casa es tu casa. Or my home is your home. In fact, we say it so often that when she was little, our youngest daughter once told us that it was a Bible verse. <laughs> so, if we've been taught, if we've been taught this year that the theme of the Pentateuch is, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell with you in the land, I will be your God. You will be my people, and I will dwell with you in the land. Then apparently, God wants his home to be Israel's home. In a sense, God is saying to Israel in these five books, Mi casa es tu casa. My home is your home. And according to Revelation 20 and 21, along with believing Israel in the millennial kingdom, Revelation 21, 3, God will dwell among all who have ever believed, and we shall be his people, and God himself will be among us. Doesn't that sound like the theme of the Pentateuch? And even better, even better than the millennial kingdom, in the end, all believers will finally dwell with God in his permanent home in the new heaven and the new earth. And that's when his home will finally and for eternity be our home. So, if we are truly saved, if we have repented of our sin and placed our trust in Jesus for salvation, if God has treated us as if we lived the perfect life of Christ, then as his daughters, we long, we long to be home with our Father. And have you noticed that neither Abraham, nor Isaac, nor Jacob ever had a permanent home on earth? Which means, of course, that their wives never had a permanent home either. No American dream for them, right? Our chapters for today, starting off in Genesis 37.1, say, Genesis 37.1, now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. So Jacob lived as a stranger, 
or a sojourner, a pilgrim in Canaan. Nowadays, we would call him a foreigner or an immigrant. And although we learn in Genesis 48 that he acquired a piece of land, the patriarchs only ever owned a little field with a cave in it to bury their dead in. Remember, just a little field with a cave in it. And that's why Hebrews 11.13, Hebrews 11.13 says that they were strangers and pilgrims or exiles on the earth. And boy, ladies, when we lived in Mexico, I always felt like a stranger, like an exile, like a foreigner. No matter how hard I try, I always stuck out like a sore thumb, right? And now, after having been gone for 18 years, give or take, I feel like a foreigner here, too. And honestly, I think all of us are starting to feel a little bit like foreigners in this crazy country, right? But that's a good thing. We should see ourselves as foreigners. We should feel like strangers, like sojourners, pilgrims, exiles, because spiritually, we are. We can welcome that which makes us feel uncomfortable here because it reminds us that just like Jacob in Genesis 37, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. And in part, because of their sojourning, because they were always foreigners, as we get to this account of Jacob in Genesis 37 through 50, this last of the generation accounts, this last section of Genesis, we see Jacob and his sons anxiously anticipating that permanent country, the promised land, a a promised home, a permanent home to dwell in with God forever. And we see them anxiously looking ahead for the future Savior. Remember the promised seed, the promised Messiah. But here comes our lesson for today. It's no good to look forward to a Savior, the promised seed. It's no good to look forward to dwelling with God if he can't protect us on our way home right? It's no good to look forward to a Savior if he can't protect us on our way home. And that is primarily what Genesis 37 through 50 is showing us, how God protected his people, specifically through Joseph. That's the title for today's lesson, God's protection of his people through Joseph. But this section doesn't just look at him. We'll also see how God uses Judah to protect his people. So what we're going to do is not examine everything in these 13 chapters. Thank you, Lauren, 13. But just focus in on that truth, and we'll call it God's protection of his people through Joseph in three stages of prophecy that strengthen our faith. We've got that written there on our notes, if you have your notes. And all you have to write if you're a note taker like me is three stages of prophecy that strengthen our faith. Three stages of prophecy that strengthen our faith. God's ability to do what he says he will do, his sovereignty strengthens our faith. The fulfillment of his prophecies here strengthens our trust in him. Ladies, we don't believe in nothing. We believe in a God who does what he says 
he will do. And the original audience who received the Pentateuch, the second generation, the children of those who came up out of Egypt, they really needed to know this, right? If we can imagine ourselves in their place before entering the promised land, before this great and overwhelming task of conquering the people of Canaan, I mean, can you even imagine being in that situation? The second generation needed to know that God would and could protect them. And we've seen that in Genesis. So here in these chapters, we can be strengthened in our faith by observing past prophecy, present prophecy, and future prophecy. Past, present, and future prophecy. And you're probably thinking, wait a minute, aren't all prophecies future? Well, what we mean is prophecy from the perspective of Jacob and his sons. So what they would have seen as past, present, and future prophecies. So at the end of his life, at the end of his life in Genesis 48, 15, Jacob says something so important. Genesis 48, 15. This is so important for our lesson today. He says, God has fed me or shepherded me in the Hebrew, shepherded me. God has shepherded me all my life long to this day. That's Jacob. And we remember Jacob was a shepherd. So he knew what he was talking about, right? Shepherds had to feed and they had to protect their sheep. They had to protect their sheep. So he calls God in verse 16, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. And the word Jacob uses for redeemed is talking about protection, exactly what we're seeing in these chapters. In fact, the very first time that God revealed himself to Jacob in Genesis 28, he promised also to protect him or keep him. And here at the end of his life, Jacob testified that God had fulfilled his word. God protected Jacob from evil. In fact, God protected all his people in Genesis by sustaining them physically as long as he wanted them alive, by shepherding them all their lives, and by protecting them from evil. That doesn't mean that nothing negative ever happened to them. Lots of crazy stuff happened to them, right? But he was protecting them. And he was fulfilling his prophecies and promises to them. And from what I learned, the angel that Jacob mentions here in Genesis 48, 16, is referring to the protection of the pre-incarnate Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ, which, by the way, shows again from the Old Testament that Jesus is God. So in Genesis 48, at the end of Jacob's life, we learn that God, Jesus himself, the pre-incarnate Christ, was protecting his people. But he was protecting them in ways that they and we would not have expected. Sometimes it doesn't look like protection when when they're in the middle of it. And that's true for us too, if we're saved. So first, let's look at God's protection of his people through Joseph in past prophecy. Past prophecy, and we can find this in chapters 37 through 39. Past prophecy Chapters 37 through 39. And the past prophecy that really defines this part of Genesis is not actually given in these chapters. Hmm? 
The prophecy that most moves this section was given to them in their past. God is protecting his people by beginning to fulfill one of his past prophecies. Back in Genesis 15, Genesis 15, verse 13, God said to Abraham, Genesis 15, 13, no, certainly, or in other words, there is no question, without a doubt, your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them for a hundred years. That doesn't sound like the most fun prophecy. So this prophecy that was given to them in the past included first a move, a move. Okay, so Abraham's descendants will move to a foreign land, be afflicted as strangers there, and God will deliver them. God would give the Israelites their promised land, their promised home, but first he needed to move them to a place where they could grow. They needed to be strong. They needed to multiply. They needed to become more than just this little family group. Like to us, that's actually like a big family group. But for them, that was just a little family group. They needed to become a nation. And for these last two weeks, we've been seeing Jacob's sons mixing up with the unbelieving Canaanites, right? So honestly, if they had stayed in Canaan, they could literally have gone out of existence. They would have been absorbed into the pagan and corrupt peoples around them. So by beginning to fulfill this prophecy from Genesis 15, God would protect them. Again, this lesson is all about God protecting his people. So God is protecting his people, but not just from outside threats. With this prophecy, he will protect them from themselves. Mm -hmm. God is protecting them from themselves. A move to Egypt at that time in history would protect God's people because the Egyptians, unlike the Canaanites, didn't want to intermarry with the Hebrews. They didn't even want to hang out with the Hebrews. Remember Joseph when he's acting like an Egyptian in chapter 43? He doesn't even eat with his brothers when he has them over for a meal. In chapter 43, we read that the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. That's a strong word, abomination. And you know, that's an interesting way to have a meal with people. You eat in your dining room, and they eat in theirs. So weird. But apparently, that's what the Egyptians did at that time with foreigners. And to top it all off, In God's unbelievable control, God's sovereignty over every little detail in history in the universe, the Egyptians didn't even like the specific type of work that Jacob's family did. Only God can plan all these things. The Egyptians looked down on shepherding. Genesis 46 says, every shepherd, there's that word again, is an abomination to the Egyptians. So God, without ever ever being the author or approver of sin, God planned to use this Egyptian racism issue and the Egyptian disdain for shepherds to isolate his people, to isolate his people. And this would keep them from spiritual corruption and allow them to grow into that nation that would be capable of going to war. So in the first place, our faith can be strengthened as we see God's protection of his people through Joseph in this past 
prophecy. We learn that we can trust God when we see how he is sovereignly working out this prophecy to protect his people. And secondly, our faith is strengthened as we see God's protection of his people through Joseph in present prophecy, or at least prophecy that was present at Joseph's time. And that would be in chapters 40 through 45. And there's a little there in chapter 37 too, so you're just going to have to follow me, okay? Chapters 40 through 45. God protects his people through Joseph by giving him, remember, these two dreams in chapter 37, and then by allowing him to interpret the dreams of two prisoners in chapter 40, and then by allowing him to interpret two of Pharaoh's dreams in chapter 41. And honestly, honestly, the interpretation of Joseph's dreams is kind of obvious, right? We didn't need anyone to really interpret that for us. No, we all kind of got it. The whole family understood what the implication of Joseph's dreams was, that he was going to rule over everybody, right? Which was so irritating to them because their father, Jacob, had already made it so clear that he was planning that Joseph would be his heir, even though technically Joseph wasn't his oldest son. That was the purpose of the special robe, the special tunic that he'd been given by his father. So, naturally, they're envious of Joseph. They hate him. They don't repent. And they end up selling him into slavery and lie to their father about it. Again, we keep seeing these sins in Genesis over and over. Envy, hatred, lying. But amazingly, something we also keep seeing in Genesis is even though God's people suffer because of their sin, even God's people can't mess up God's plans. Even God's people cannot mess up God's plans. Eventually, Joseph will say to his brothers at the end there in Genesis 50, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to save many people alive. Genesis 50, 20. And I mention that verse in part because the other day, our pastor Josiah Grauman emphasized that in Hebrew, the word meant there could be translated thought or planned. So just as the brothers thought, they really thought about it. Remember, they're talking about it. They're planning this. They planned evil for Joseph God planned it for good. He planned it all to protect his people, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? And we see that all through scripture. God is always, always, always the sovereign. Not us, not Joseph's brothers, not even the people who killed Jesus. He's always acting. He's never reacting to situations like we do. Without ever being the author or approver of sin, God controls sin. He uses it for his purposes. And these prophecies that we're seeing here clearly demonstrate that to us. They demonstrate God's sovereignty. But before we continue, we have just one little thing to clarify about these dream prophecies We have to clarify that God's method here of prophesying through the interpretation of dreams was extremely rare in the Bible. This is not something that we should expect to happen to us. 
Genesis is narrative literature. It's telling us what happened. It's not prescriptive literature. It's not necessarily giving us clear commands. It's narrative, not prescriptive. So when we read about Joseph and the dreams he interprets, it's not a command for us to try to figure out what God might be revealing to us in our dreams. As my husband would say, you heard, he's a Mexican. So what he would say is, if you have a weird dream, it's probably because you ate too many tacos before going (laughs) to bed. If you have a weird dream, it's probably because you ate too many tacos, ladies, before you went to bed. We don't need God to reveal his word to us now through dreams because we have his complete revelation here in the Bible. That should encourage us. So back to Genesis 42. Genesis 42 and the fulfillment of all these dream prophecies. Unbelievably, through these series of providential events that only God himself could bring about in order again to protect his people More than 15 years after Joseph received the dreams, his brothers finally ended up bowing before him in Genesis 42, verse 6. Genesis 42, 6. And it happened not once, not twice, but a total of five times. We see it in Genesis 42, two times in Genesis 43, Genesis 44, and Genesis And this is not like a pride issue for Joseph. The point was not to see his brothers grovel in front of him. The point was God's faithful fulfillment of his prophecies that God could be trusted. Joseph always remembers, he always remembers that God was using him not to make Joseph happy and fulfilled and powerful or whatever, but to save God's people. And he submitted to being just an instrument in God's sovereign hand. In fact, that's what kept him from bitterness. He knew he was an instrument for God's glory. So again, our faith can be strengthened when we contemplate God's protection of his people through Joseph in past prophecy. And in what would have been in his time, present prophecy. And lastly... God protected his people through Joseph by using what we could call future prophecy. Future prophecy in chapters 46 through 50 and a little bit in chapter 44. So we're going to jump around there. Chapters 46 through 50, future prophecy. And this is the longest point in our outline, but I think it's worth it. We're going to look here at three future prophecies that finish up this last section of Genesis And these prophecies strengthen our faith. Three future prophecies to strengthen our faith. First, a prophecy to Jacob in Genesis 46. A prophecy to Jacob. A lot has happened by the time we get to Genesis 46, right? Joseph is now second in command in Egypt. He's been reconciled to his brothers. And his father, Jacob, is about to move to Egypt with the whole family. And we see here that God is so merciful, so merciful to Jacob. And if you've noticed as we're studying, Jacob often seems so fearful, right? He's so worrisome. In fact, he reminds us of other people that we've read about in Genesis, right? His father, Isaac, his grandfather, Abraham, they all struggled with fear. And you know, if it was me, I would be worried too if I was Jacob. He's 130 years of age at this time, and he's moving from one country to another. 
That sounds intimidating to me. <laughs> he, but I think really, in the light of all that we see in Scripture, perhaps his main concern, his main fear, might have been leaving the promised land because of what he knew about the Abrahamic covenant. And I think we have to remember when we read Genesis that the patriarchs, they didn't have a whole Bible like we do to flip open whenever they got worried about something. They couldn't just open up the Psalms and, you know, pray over them like we can. And, you know, sometimes we wish that we were them and we could have God come and talk to us personally, but we have it so much better, don't we? We have the whole Bible It is amazing how well they did with so little revelation from God and how poorly we do with so much. No? So just as he does with us in the Bible, God so graciously gives Jacob his word just when he needed it most. God tells him in Genesis 46.3, Genesis 46.3, right when he's about to leave Canaan and cross into Egypt, God so gracious and tells him, verse 3, Genesis 46, 3, do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. Again, prophecy of the Abrahamic covenant. And then he says, God says to Jacob, I will go down with you to Egypt. I will go down with you to Egypt, which is the same thing he said to him back in Genesis 28 and again in Genesis 31. And that little phrase reminds us of the four times in Genesis 39 where we read that God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. And it really comforts me to see that God's presence was with both godly Joseph and not so godly Jacob because that's who I identify with more. So that comforts me. And this study over and over has reminded me of Three special verses. There's a lot more verses that this study has reminded me of, but these verses have been a great comfort. Psalm 73, 28. Psalm 73, 28 says, The nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. I really love that verse. And Joshua 1, 9 says, that would have been for the original audience of the Pentateuch, Joshua 1, 9. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Matthew 28, 20. Matthew 28, 20, where Jesus says, Behold, I am with you. And he adds, always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. God was with Jacob. God was with Joseph. God would be with Jacob. And God would be with the second generation as they needed to conquer the promised land. And Jesus says that he will be with us, even when no one else is. And God continues reassuring Jacob with another future prophecy. Verse 4, Genesis 46, 4. And I will also surely bring you back up again, bring you up again. He's going to go down with him to Egypt. And he says, and I will also surely bring you up again. And that would be up from Egypt. And we see this prophecy fulfilled in Genesis in chapter 50, when after his death, Jacob's body is brought back up to Canaan to be buried there by his sons. And later, Jacob's descendants would return to Canaan as well. That was God's prophecy. That was God's promise to him. And then such mercy, verse 
4 at the end of the verse. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. In other words, Joseph would be with Jacob at his death. Jacob had only 17 years with Joseph in his home. But Jacob would enjoy 17 more years with Joseph before his death at 147 years of age. What a merciful savior to such an undeserving man. So there we are blessed to observe those future prophecies given and fulfilled. And now let's see a prophecy about Judah and Jesus. You know this, you knew this was coming, right? Judah and Jesus, chapter 48 and a lot in chapter 44, Genesis 48 and 44. So ladies, we're going to see one more prophecy at the end of Genesis after this one. So don't clock out. Stick with me. As Dr. Chow and Dr. Twist and other commentators point out, the key prophecy of Genesis 48 to 49 is that which the whole book has been anticipating. From whom will come the seed, the savior of God's people, he who will crush the serpent's head. And you know, we often hear about child-centered parenting, right? But Genesis seems to be about seed-centered parenting. Seed-centered parenting. Would you agree? Eve apparently thought the seed or the Messiah, the Savior, would be Cain. Lamech probably thought the seed would be Noah. Then Abraham sinfully tried to produce the line of the seed through Ishmael. Next, Isaac wanted the seed to come through Esau. And finally, it looks like Jacob wanted the seed to come through Joseph. But if there's anything we've seen in Genesis, it is that God chooses, not us. God chooses, not us. He's the sovereign, not us. So what future prophecy do we find here? Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter, which was the symbol of kingship, the scepter shall not depart from whom? From Judah. From Judah. So the line of the seed will not come through Joseph. Jacob, he's a firm guy. He's still going to give the firstborn inheritance, the double blessing inheritance to Joseph's two sons in chapter 48. And because of that, we're not going to read about a tribe of Joseph in Israel, but we will read of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. But to bring it back down to 12, the tribe of Levi as priests will be spread out amongst the other tribes. Isn't that amazing? But the line of the seed, the line of the king, the line of Messiah will come through Judah, through the son of Jacob's first wife, Leah, just as God chose Isaac through Abraham's first wife, Sarah. So God has certainly been using Joseph to protect his people in these chapters, but God will choose the line of Judah ultimately to save his people through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior. In fact, I even learned that the word Jew some of the commentators said, comes from the name of Judah. That's how important Judah is. And I don't know about you, but after reading about Judah in Genesis 38, aren't we surprised that God would choose him? You know, he marries a pagan 
Two of his sons are really awful. They're so bad, God kills them. He refuses to care for his widowed daughter-in-law. And to top it all off, you know, to just make matters worse, he gets her pregnant when she pretends to be a prostitute. You know, Judah is just not one of our top 10 Bible heroes, right? Like, I just never saw him that. I don't see him that way. If anyone in Scripture illustrates that God is gracious to undeserving sinners, Judah is it. And honestly, so was his father Jacob, his grandfather Isaac, his great-grandfather Abraham, all of their lovely wives, and us. We would expect that Judah was disqualified from the line of the seed like his older brothers, but it seems that Judah repented of his sin in Genesis 38. And this is so important, isn't it, ladies? Repentance. Judah never knows his daughter-in-law again, according to verse 26 in Genesis 38. And then, this is where chapter 44 comes in, ladies. When tested by Joseph, remember, Joseph is really wise. And so in chapter 44, he's testing his brothers. And there in Genesis 44, Judah finally uses his really great leadership abilities for good. Judah leads his brothers in repentance. When given the opportunity to abandon the new favorite of dad, Benjamin, as they had abandoned Joseph, Judah instead intercedes. He's a different man in chapter 44 than the Judah that we know in chapter 38. And he says to Joseph, though he doesn't even know it's Joseph at that time, he says, Genesis 44, verse 33, Genesis 44, 33, please let your servant, which is a humble way of referring to himself, let your servant remain there in Egypt instead of the lad instead of Benjamin, as a slave. And then let's notice why. Verse 34, why? For how shall I go up to my father, my father, if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? Judah offers himself as a substitutionary sacrifice in order to show love to his undeserving father. This man who had not shown a lot of love to his mother, Leah, or to him and his brothers. And honestly, that's really the focus of his whole speech in chapter 44, how much he doesn't want to hurt his father. He mentions his father 12 or 13 times in these verses. And by the way, What a contrast with Ham. Remember Ham? We got to go backwards there. Genesis 9, okay? Ham, one of the sons of Noah, who was so disrespectful of his father, right? Ham's disrespect for his father was actually what led to the cursing of his family, the Canaanites. What a contrast with Judah and his respect for his father. Judah shows us how we should honor our parents in spite of their weaknesses and sins. It really is Judah's repentant leadership that makes possible the reconciliation of Jacob's family and the continued life of God's people. 
And several commentators pointed out that Judah's actions point to how the Messiah, how Jesus will offer himself as a sacrificial substitute in our place. So God is using not just Joseph, but also Judah to protect, to save his people. And finally, I promised you there was another one. Finally, a third prophecy, which is the prophecy reaffirmed by Joseph. Prophecy reaffirmed by Joseph in Genesis 50. We've seen future prophecy about Jacob's death future prophecy about Jacob's sons, and we're going to see just one last prophecy in the verses of Genesis 50. There, Joseph says, Genesis 50, verse 25, Joseph says that not only God will surely, we like that word here in Genesis, God will surely take care of you or acknowledge you, but also you shall carry my bones up from here. And here at the end of this section of Genesis, we come full circle to that same prophecy from Genesis 15. Remember, back in Genesis 15, 14, Genesis 15, 14, God said to Abram that after the oppression of his descendants in a foreign land, the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out. They shall return here. And that first part of the prophecy had been fulfilled in Joseph's lifetime. The people of God had been moved down to Egypt, just like God said they would. But here in Genesis 50, Joseph assures his family that the last part of the prophecy will be fulfilled too. Joseph is such an example of faith to us because he was confident that God would fulfill his word. And sure enough, 400 years later, prophecy fulfilled. According to Exodus 2.25, Exodus 2.25, we read that God looked on the Israelites in their slavery, in their oppression, and acknowledged them or cared for them. The same phrase used by Joseph in Genesis 50. Just as Joseph affirmed God acknowledged or cared for the Israelites, So there, we've seen three future prophecies. Prophecy to Jacob, prophecy about Judah and Jesus, and prophecy reaffirmed with such confidence by Joseph. We can see even in Exodus 13 that Moses took Joseph's bones up out of Egypt and later Joshua, all these guys with J's, Joshua buried them in the promised land. Joseph truly lived in the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But you know, ladies, this confidence that Joseph had, this faith of Joseph was hard won. His faith was not a cold scientific study in faith. His faith was refined by fire. His faith reminds us of the psalmist who says to God in Psalm 56, 8, Psalm 56, 8, you number my wanderings. Joseph certainly understood that. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And did you notice how many times in these chapters we read about Joseph's tears? I found at least eight different occasions on which Joseph is said 
to have wept, wept. Genesis 42, Genesis 43, three times in Genesis 45, Genesis 46 and twice in Genesis 50. That's a lot of crying and for a man. (laughs) Joseph had much to weep about. And if we turn back to Genesis 39, Genesis 39, 23, we see what must have been the lowest point in his life. Genesis 39.23 says, if we put ourselves back there, yet the chief butler, remember, did not remember Joseph, but forgot him, forgot him. And then the next verse in Genesis 41.1 says, then it came to pass at the end of two full years, two full years, Pharaoh had a dream. And we all know what's about to happen right? We know it's going to be good, but Joseph didn't. We read those two verses so quickly. We could read all of Joseph's life in just a few minutes, but he lived those years so slowly. He had no light at the end of the tunnel. He had no knowledge of why all of this was happening to him. In fact, the text never tells us why God took another two full years to get Joseph out of prison. Why he didn't just, you know, give Pharaoh the dreams the day after he fulfilled the butler and the baker's dreams. That would have been nice, right? But Joseph lived like David, who said in Psalm 31, Psalm 31, 12, I am forgotten like a dead man out of mind. But look at the solution in Psalm 31, verse 14. But as for me, even when the circumstances didn't change, David says, I trust in you. Oh, Lord, not in the circumstances. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Though Joseph and the patriarchs had so little revelation from God, they remembered what we have learned in Genesis, that God fulfills his word. God is faithful to his promises. God fulfills his prophecies. And how gracious is God to us? You know, that when we don't see, when we don't know why God is allowing what is happening in our lives, we can open this huge book, huge, right? And starting in Genesis and continuing through all of scripture, we can find hope that God will fulfill his word. And that's why Joseph was so sure of God at the end of his life. He had seen God's faithfulness. He had seen God's fulfillment of prophecies. And we have too through the testimony of scripture. Just as these chapter, chapters should have strengthened the faith of the second generation to obey God and conquer the promised land, these chapters, God's trustworthiness seen here, should strengthen us to obey him too. The whole point of strengthening our faith ultimately is to motivate our obedience. The whole point of strengthening our faith with these prophecies is to motivate our obedience, our trust in God. So today we've seen God's protection of his people through Joseph in three stages of prophecy that strengthen our faith. From the perspective of Jacob and his sons, we've looked at past, present, and future prophecy that served to strengthen their faith, and I hope ours too. So if we are Christians, if we are daughters, which I think most of us are, if we're daughters, 
Like Jacob's sons, God is protecting you, even if your parents sin against you. Single women, like Joseph, God is with you, even when faced with temptation or loneliness. Working ladies, also like Joseph, God is protecting you, even when your employer is unjust or you're maligned for being obedient to Scripture. Wives, like Leah, God cares for you even when your husband doesn't. Women who can't have children, like the patriarch's wives, God sees your tears. God hears your prayers. He is with you even if a child is not. (laughs) Pastor's wives, missionary wives, like the patriarchs and their wives, God is with you even when you are a foreigner or when you are alone and many people reject you. Hmm? Mothers like Eve God cares for you in your failures and your fears, in your sleepless night and your difficult or even rebellious children like Cain. Older ladies and widows like the patriarchs, God cares for you. God will provide for you even when others can't anymore. Single moms, divorced women like Hagar. Remember Hagar? God hears you. God sees you. God cares for you. If we get sick, God will be with us even if the hospital will not allow anyone to visit. If we are sent to prison for obedience to God, he will be there with us just as he was with Joseph. Hmm. And last of all, even if we've sinned like Joseph's brothers and carry a heavy weight of guilt, God can forgive us because of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus in our place. And today, if you haven't done so, we would beg you to repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus for your salvation. He's the best protection you could ever have. Only he can protect us from the punishment that we rightly deserve for our sin. So I'm going to (laughs) conclude. Throughout Genesis, we see that God's high and exalted and eternal plans are being accomplished. He will be Israel's God. They will be his people. And he will dwell with them in the land. But God is also our God. We are also his people. And he will dwell with us in the new heaven and the new earth. His home will be our home. Su casa será nuestra casa. And on our way there, on our way to his home, just as with his people in Genesis God is our shepherd too. Just as he protected his people through Joseph, he also protects us through Jesus. So it is my prayer that today these three simple categories of prophecy may have strengthened our faith because ultimately a strong faith results in strong obedience. So let's pray for that. Hmm? Our beloved father, our sweet Shepherd, thank you for showing us your faithfulness to your people through prophecies and your faithfulness to us as well. Thank you for making it possible for sinful women like ourselves to live with you in your eternal home through Jesus, the promised seed, the promised Messiah, our Savior. In whatever trials all of these dear women are facing. Remind us of these truths, O oh Lord. You know that we're so forgetful. 
and we are so weak. Help us to remember your word. Remind us of these prophecies to strengthen our faith in you and help us like the men and women we've seen in Genesis to obey you because of our faith in you. Amen.